this passage has much to teach us in that way. But rather than, than taking that narrow approach, focusing in on just that aspect, I want us to take sort of a broader picture here uh, to consider it within the context of what we have seen leading up to this and with the passage that immediately follows it. And so let's hear God's word together. This is Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. It says, Now they were beginning, bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? And he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter, and Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this place, as we enter into your presence, uh, what a joy it is uh, to come. Uh, what a joy it is to know that, that you call to us, that, that you accept us, that, that you allow us, even before your throne of grace, to find mercy and help in our time of need. Father, you call us uh, not because we have done enough good deeds to, to merit that. Uh, you don't call us because we are, are the richest or, or we are uh, what would be called uh, successful or great in the world's eyes. Lord, you call us only because we come in the blood of Jesus Christ, only because he has taken our sin at the cross, only because he has died in our place can we enter in now and know that, that you hear our prayers and know that you receive us as righteous in your sight. And Lord, we, we rejoice in that truth. We bow before you today and worship you as our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Father, as we consider uh, the, the needs of our church, as we consider the various things that, that we have planned, and Lord, we, we rejoice that we can go out into our community, uh, that you've given us all these various opportunities, and Lord, we pray that you would bless them. Uh, Lord, we thank you for, for new members. Uh, we thank you just for, for the way that you continue uh, to, to grow us and bless us, and Lord, we pray for each one. Uh, we thank you for the gifts that you have given them, and we pray that they would use them to, to edify and build up your people but also that we as a church, that we would uh, surround them uh, with your care, that we would love them the way that you call us to love them, and that all of us together uh, would work to glorify your name. Uh, Lord, we thank you for baptism. 
Uh, we thank you that you do receive little children, that that covenant promise that you made to Abraham, uh, that you make to believing parents, it is for their children. And Lord, what a, a great hope that gives us as we raise our kids in a fallen uh, and often uh, scary and difficult world. Uh, Lord, to know that, that you love them far more than we do, uh, that you care for them far more than even we can. We praise you and thank you for that truth. Lord, we know that, that as we consider raising our children, as we consider our own lives, it is your word that we need. Lord, we come now to it. And so we pray that, that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, I, I cannot present this in a way that would penetrate to our hearts. Only you can do that. And so we ask that you would now be faithful uh, to, to take this word and apply it to our hearts. Give us exactly what we need, whether that's encouragement, uh, whether that is conviction, Whatever it is, uh, Lord, help us to, to see what you would have for us here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the past few years, uh, one of our kids' favorite pastimes, especially at the dinner table, it seems that, that we do this more there in any other place, uh, has been to play the game called Would You Rather. Uh, now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with that game. Uh, and if you're not, the, the name is fairly self-explanatory, but the idea is, of course, you present two scenarios, and you say, would you rather be or do, or would you rather eat, uh, A or B? And so, in, in our household, it might go something like, would you rather be a shark or a gorilla? And then a argument would ensue over who would win between a shark and a gorilla. You know, if you put a shark on land, would he beat the gorilla, gorilla in the ocean? Or if they had a hybrid place where they could really battle it out, who would win? Clearly, it is very stimulating, enthralling conversation. But, but having said that, every now and again, there are times, maybe by accident, uh, where the questions do get a little deeper, where they require just a little bit more thought from all of us. For example, one day we debated whether it would be better to be famous or unknown. Another time we considered whether we would rather be in a position of power or maybe just a normal citizen. And then just this week, Wes asked me, would I rather be rich or would I rather be poor? No qualifiers, nothing. Would I rather be rich or would I rather be poor? Now, and I'm not going to take you through all of the ins and outs of those conversations, but I would ask you this morning just to sort of play the game along with us this morning. If I asked you those questions, which would you choose? Is it famous and powerful and rich? Or is it poor and helpless and unknown? Now, the truth is, is I don't think I have to poll the room to know the answer to that question. All of us, all of our hearts, to some degree or another, we long for option number one, right? We long for success. We long to be seen as something in the world's eyes. Maybe even if it's not on a grand scale, even in just our own little small areas of influence, our jobs, our homes. We long to have those types of things, power. Uh, and, and money and authority. We long to have those things, right? That's the world's idea of success. To some degree or another, it is what we all strive after when we're striving after that American dream. But you know, if we've learned nothing else in our study of Luke, uh, we've learned that what God values, uh, 
that what's important sort of in the heavenly economy. And I would submit to all of us this morning that that's really the things that we should be concerned about, right? What is it that God requires of us? What is it that he values in our lives? Well, what he has shown us is that it is things, it is traits that are very different from the world's standards. Think back with me, if you can, over the course of this book. We've seen God use the most unlikely of characters. We've seen him use a teenage girl. We've seen Jesus call fishermen and tax collectors. We've seen Christ interact with and commend not the religious establishment, not the religious elite, but the lepers, the foreigners, the moral and societal outcasts. Then, of course, we've heard him say things like, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. He has said, He who is first shall be last. And just last time, uh, back in verse 14, we, we heard him say, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Clearly. Clearly what God is looking for in his people. Uh, It's something different than than what the world would have us be. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's really something different than what all of our hearts would want us to be, right? And so if we were to really consider that question, would you rather? The answer, uh, it might be something different than, than what we had imagined. We might be wary of what our hearts would lead us to. Now, nowhere is that point more clear than in the passage before us this morning. As you can see, I have titled my message, How to Enter the Kingdom of God, uh, because that's really the theme that holds these two accounts together. If you look at verses 16, verse 17, verse 18, verse 24, and verse 26, they all address how to enter the kingdom. They all ask the question, how is it? that we can be saved. And so that's a good title. But with that said, I just as easily could have named this sermon The Losing Fight for Personal Independence. The Losing Fight for Personal Independence. You know, to stick with my illustration here, it's almost as if God comes to us and He asks, Would you rather live your life completely independent not, not burdened by anyone else, not beholden to anyone else or to no thing, or would you rather live it completely dependent, completely reliant on someone else to give you whatever it is that you receive and whatever it is that you need? Now, that may be a, a silly way to frame this, but what Jesus makes clear here is that your answer to that question, and friends, as we get prepared for this passage, I want you to hear this clearly. Your answer to that question of of what would you rather be, it will determine whether you enter the kingdom of God or not. And so with the time that we have left, let's consider what our answers might be, and let's see how to enter the kingdom of God. The first thing that I want you to notice in this passage is a child's dependence, is a child's dependence. And you see it there in verses 15 through 17. Now, before we jump into it, let me just remind you of the wider context here, and particularly verse 9 from our time uh, in the passage last week. Jesus said there, as he got prepared to tell the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, he said, uh, or Luke tells us that, that he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves 
that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, the, the parable was given not just to illustrate the proper disposition of sinful man before God, and we, we said that that was certainly part of, the, of what was going on here, uh, but it was also given to illustrate the proper disposition of sinful men before other sinful men, right? Rather than, than being like the Pharisee who stood on a pedestal of his own making, looking down on those who were morally and religiously beneath him, Christ was commanding his people to humble themselves, to, to think more highly of others, even those who are marginalized, even those who are outcast, even those who are morally reprehensible here with this tax collector, to think of them more highly than they would think of themselves. Friends, this was the disposition that Christ himself had taken by coming to this world, by, by interacting with people like you and I. He had humbled himself, and now this was the disposition he wanted to see. He, he commanded in his people. It's what he commands in you and I. Now, I want to pause here just for a second, because as we said in our announcements this week, we are going out into the community. And my prayer is that as we do that, as we knock on doors, that many people will come out, that they will be a part of what we're doing there, and that they will hear of Jesus, and that they will long to, to know him better. But friends, the reality is, is as we knock on doors, it, we don't know who it is that's going to come. It may be people from different backgrounds, different societal places in life, different financial places, whatever it may be. And the question is, as we consider this passage, as we consider what Jesus said to us last week, how will we treat those people? Will we look down on them? Will, will we be like the Pharisee and say, God, in our hearts, really, we won't say it out loud, I realize, but in our hearts, will we say, God, I thank you that I'm not like these people? Or will we, like the tax collector, humble ourselves before God, humble ourselves before men, realize, remember who we are, and treat them accordingly? Well, friends, that's what Christ has called us to, but I want you to notice here uh, how easy it is, even for those who are closest to Jesus, to miss that point altogether, or at least to forget very quickly the lessons that he has taught them. Notice in verse 15, it says, Now they were bringing infants to him that he might touch them. Now, if you have children, if you've ever worked in the nursery, you can imagine that this was a fairly chaotic scene, right? Um, Luke is the only gospel writer that tells us, sorry, it's a little hot there. He's the only um, gospel writer that tells us that, that these were infants that, that they were bringing. And so you know that, that babies cry, uh, babies spit up, babies produce all sorts of smells that are unpleasant and are, that you don't really want to have to deal with, right? And so you can imagine as these parents are coming, as they are bringing these children, that it's disruptive to, to the ministry that these disciples, that Jesus, have been doing all along the way. But of course, Jesus is kind. He is gracious. He says, bring them on. I want to bless them. I want to hold them. But the disciples, uh, they, they're not so sure about it. They're not so gung-ho about these children coming. And so we read there at the end, uh, back in verse 6, uh, in verse 15, at the end, when, when the, the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Uh, they, they turned them away. Again, in a sense, uh, this, is, this is not surprising at all. 
Not only were babies disruptive, but also in that society, children in general were seen as a burden. They weren't seen as the bundle of joy that, that we now consider them, uh, but they were seen as a, almost a burden to a family until uh, just another mouth to feed, until they could care for themselves, until they could provide for themselves and help provide for the family. And so children were often marginalized. They were often ignored. Uh, they were often even neglected. They certainly wouldn't have been seen as a priority to most religious leaders. And so, you know, the disciples, they look around. They, they see all of the important people who have gathered, people like this rich young ruler who we're going to consider in just a moment. That They see those who need to be healed. Uh, they see those who are in need of salvation, who have come to hear the word. They say, man, we've got to get these kids out of here. We've got to get to the real work, our real work. We can't be distracted by all of these little ones. And so we can see them sort of shooing them away, right? Y'all got, got to go. got to get out of here. Again, it seems that, that this whole idea of humility, especially towards the marginalized, humility towards the oppressed, it has gone in one ear and right out the other. Not only that, but they have also seemed to have forgotten what Christ said back in Luke chapter 9 and in verse 48. You turn back there with me, you'll remember he said, again, uh, the, the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest among them. Remember, Jesus took a little child and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives receives." Me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is greatest. Here, they seem to be revealing not only their attitudes towards these children, but in rejecting them and sending them away, they're also revealing to some degree or another their attitude toward Christ himself. Jesus says, those who receive these children receive me. And so, as they make their attitude clear, notice how Jesus gently but very poignantly rebukes them there in verse 16. It says, but Jesus called them, and say, called them together saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In other words, the only way to approach Christ, the only way to enter his kingdom, is to come in the same way as these children, as these infants were coming to Christ. Now the question before us now is what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to come to Christ as a child? Well first, let's consider what it does not mean. What Jesus is not telling us here is that our faith or that our belief should be childish, right? Clearly, over and over and over again in Scripture, Paul, the author of Hebrews, they encourage us to grow to maturity, right? To, to grow from the milk of the Word to solid food. And so this is not childishness, to be sure. We, we are to mature, we are to grow in our understanding, in our faith. Not only that, but many commentators at least have believed that this maybe is a call back to some form of innocence. That we are to, to be innocent as a child is innocent. The problem with that is what we've just heard here. 
Are our children really in the sight of God innocent? David says he was born in iniquity, right? That he entered this world as a sinner, and that's true for every single one of us. And so what Christ is calling us back to here is not some idyllic state, right? It's not some state before the world has corrupted us. Friends, the reality is, is, is we come in. Because we are sons of Adam, sons and daughters of Adam, we come into the world already with that sinful nature in us. And so, what is it about children that Jesus is commending to us? Well, as one commentator points out, that there's several things that, that could be the option to us. You know, one of my favorite things about working with kids for all of the years that I did about going to camp uh, is kids have this wide-eyed amazement about everything, about the, the smallest things, right? Uh, so we have a drawer in our house, and I'm sure you have one of these too, that's just full of junk, full of just whatever we find we throw in that drawer. And it's also full of balloons. And so Sarah Grace loves that drawer because she loves to go and get balloons. She'll say, Daddy, here, blow this balloon up. But rather than me tying it, she wants me to blow it up, and she wants me to let it go. And y'all, you have never seen a human in your life more excited, more thrilled about anything than this girl about me letting this balloon go and it making the noise and going all over the room and doing that. She loves it. Now, children are that way, right? They're amazed by the fact that you can pick them up. They're amazed by the fact that you love them and that you're going to love them forever. Clearly, as we approach God as his children, that's the way that he wants us to love him. It's the way we can love him with a wholehearted, full-on amazement. Children also have a complete trust in faith in those around them. Uh, so much so that, that it can often be a detriment to them, right? We have to teach them about stranger danger. We have to teach them that they can't believe everything they see or hear or read. They trust. They trust completely, especially those who are closest to them. If you tell them something, you believe it. Some might say that's just being gullible, and maybe it is, but friends, with Christ, with God, we truly can believe in that way, right? He calls us to a complete faith. Children illustrate that to us so well. Thirdly, children love with their whole hearts, right? You know, they may not love everybody that they come into contact with, but if they love you, they really love you. No matter what, no matter the things that you've done, they love you. There's nothing like walking in the house and getting a hug from your child, right? And it's a good one. I mean, it is a hug, right? It's not a side hug. It's not this halfway limp kind of thing. It's a hug. They love you completely. How are we to come before God with that unhindered love? And so, all of these things, and I'm sure that there's plenty more uh, that, that we could commend in a childlike faith, in the childlike qualities that, that we should resemble in our relationship with Christ. But here, here specifically, as we talk about receiving an entry into the kingdom of God, as we consider those infants that Christ is referring to, think the quality that Christ is really trying to instill in us and trying to instill in these people is a complete an unabashed dependence. Dependence. What is it that these infants can do for themselves? Can they feed themselves? They cannot. 
Can they transport themselves? No, they're dependent on their parents to get them wherever they go. When they produce those unpleasant smells, can they clean themselves up? No. They are dependent in every way on someone else in their lives. And when that person provides for them, there's no argument, there's no bartering, there's no false sense of modesty. There's no, 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 let me do that. No. They know that they must accept, they have to accept whatever they receive. Friends, that is the only way we as sinners can enter into the kingdom of God. We must let go of all other things and fully depend on Him as a child before their Father and accept all that He gives from His hand. It is a complete dependence, completely letting go of all else. Now, Clearly, clearly, that is a difficult thing to do. And in the second part of our passage this morning, uh, we see how difficult it can be. We see a warning to us of the things that maybe we are depending on more than we are depending on Christ. And so we see a child's dependence here. But secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice a rich man's independence. A rich man's independence. Luke says this ruler in verse 18 a man with seemingly everything going for him, right? He has authority. He has money. The other gospel writers tell us that he has it at a, at a young age. He approaches Christ and he asks there in verse 18, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, on the one hand, it seems that this man is sort of on the right track. You know, despite of all of his, his obvious wealth, despite of all of his obvious authority, he realizes somewhere deep down inside there's one thing that he is lacking. There's one thing that he does not have. And so he comes to Jesus to try to find it. And that's a good place to start, right? That's the way to do it, is to come to Jesus. I want you to notice how Jesus picks apart his question. How in asking the way that he asks, he shows the reality of his heart. First off, Jesus addresses the, the, the way uh, or the terms uh, goodness that, that he uses there of Jesus, the good teacher. Why do you call me good, Jesus says. None is good but God. Now far from denying his own perfection here, what Jesus is doing is he's trying to help this man understand the standard by which all will be judged. It's not the standard of men. It's not good as we so often use it. And friends, that's especially true in our day and time, right? We use that word good. We throw it around about all sorts of things. Jesus is saying here that, that good in, in this sense is a holiness, a perfection, the holiness and perfection of God himself. And that is what is required to have eternal life. With that in mind, secondly, Jesus begins to address this man's own uh, conception of himself. You know, the man thinks he can do whatever it is that must be done to inherit eternal life. That's what he says, what must I do, right? And so Jesus tells him, he says, well, what you have to do is go keep the law. Go keep the Ten Commandments. Just like that Pharisee last week, remember we said he was able, at least on the outside, to check the boxes. He was able to say, yes, I've done that. 
And I've done that, and I've done that, and I've done that all the way down the line. And this man can say, I've done it my whole life, at least outwardly. It's seen that, that he was faithful to the law. He had the appearance of goodness. But friends, we know Jesus has reminded us over and over and over again that that actual holiness, actual goodness is not just merely on the outside. But it is what we do on the inside. He looks to our hearts. And so notice how Jesus penetrates there. He, he, instead of rebuking him, uh, instead of saying, hey, you're crazy if you think you've done all of these laws. Notice how he gets right to the point. He drives right to the man's heart. He shows him his great need. He says, okay, one thing you still lack, though. Go and sell all your possessions. Go and sell all you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. Now, it's important to recognize what Jesus, again, is not saying here. He's not saying that if we sell all we have, that we can earn our way to heaven. You know, he's not affirming some kind of good works here. What he's doing is he's showing this man the idols of his own heart. In order to inherit eternal life, what he needed was to forsake all else, was to give himself over to Christ in full with uncompromising dependence. But notice, notice, when Jesus tells him what he must do, how does he react? He says he goes away sad. He leaves because he was very rich. In other words, he cannot give up all of these things. He can't give up this idol of his heart. His riches, his money, his security in all of those things. It was more important to him than eternal life. It was more important to him than Jesus. He would rather be independent than be dependent. Friends, I wonder today, what is it that you are depending on? What is it that, that sits on the throne of your heart? For many of us, it is money. It is things. That's especially true for us as Americans. You know, there's a reason why we tend to put so many qualifiers on that verse when Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. Already, in our hearts, we begin to try to qualify that statement. So we think, if that's true, then we're all in trouble. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus is saying to us. But whether it's money, whether it's riches, whether it's our job, whether it's our families, whether it's some relationship, whether it's what we watch on TV or on the internet, whatever it may be, what is it that sits on the throne of your heart? What is it that you depend on more than anything else? Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's security. Friends, whatever that thing is, if it is not Jesus... What he is reminding us of here is it will prevent us from entering in to the kingdom of heaven. The only way to enter in is complete dependence on him, to forsake all else, to rest solely in him. We hear that, and I think we all react as those in verse 26 who heard it. 
We know our hearts. We know the idols of our hearts. We know how, how overwhelming they can be. And we say, well, then who can be saved? Well, that leads us to our third and final point. I want us to see quickly, as we try to conclude, uh, the God of the impossible. The God of the impossible. They ask the question, then who can be saved? And notice in verse 27, Jesus responds, What is impossible with man is possible with God. In other words, apart from him, salvation is impossible. And that's true for every single one of us. Apart from Christ, salvation is impossible. By his grace, through his mercy towards us in Christ Jesus, he can overcome even the greatest idols. He can even overcome our riches. He can overcome those things we depend on more than him. Friends, the only way to receive that salvation is to acknowledge that great dependence, is to acknowledge our great need and to fully trust in him with that childlike faith to redeem us, to grant us access to his heavenly kingdom. You know, I've read a commentator this week and he made the point that throughout scripture, it's always we are children of the kingdom, right? We are children of God. It never says we are adults of the kingdom. And he's making that point to us over and over and over again, that it is a childlike faith that will get us in. And so, friends, I will end where we began by asking the question, would you rather live independence? Would you rather live in independence? There's only one way to eternal life. Will you trust in him today as we pray together? Father, we praise you uh, for your word. We praise you for your love towards us, a love that we cannot earn, a love that we cannot deserve. And Lord, as we look at our lives, as we look at the things that we put above you, we put in your place, as we consider the throne of our hearts and who sits there, uh, Lord, there's many things. Most often it is ourselves who sit on that throne. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray that you would help us, uh, that you would show us our idols, help us to forsake them all. And Lord, we praise you that, that no matter how sinful we may be, how how impossible we think salvation may be for us reality is is you are the god who can do the impossible none are, are too far gone none are too sinful because you are kind and gracious you can do amazing things and so i pray for all of us here lord help us to search our hearts help us to trust in you we thank you for jesus it's in his name we pray amen As we conclude our service, let's sing together hymn number 600.